Well, Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey, probably in the late fall of 50 A.D. Behind him was the militant mobs of Macedonia and the arrogant academics of Athens. Paul came walking in that 50-mile journey west we talked about on Sunday, out to the Peloponnesian Peninsula from Athens to Corinth, alone with his thoughts and his God. And I believe that it was the second most important journey of Paul's life. The first would be the journey to Damascus, where he met Jesus. The second would be this 50-mile trek. We don't know anything about it. Paul doesn't write of it, doesn't share what happened on the way. But what we do know, what we understand is somehow something clicked in Paul. The Spirit changed his heart such that it would forever define his life and ministry. Now, I can't prove this. Some say the letter to the church of Galatia was written earlier than his first arrival to Corinth. I don't think it was. First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, the earliest letters of Paul. I think the heaviest evidence, the weightiest evidence, tells us it all happened after Athens, after his first arrival to Corinth. When he came to Corinth on this second missionary journey, he would write to the Thessalonican church. First and Second Thessalonians, which would follow then a year later. But I don't believe that any of the letters of Paul that we have were written prior to this experience. Why? Well, for one thing, historically, that seems to be correct. But but secondly, the heart of Paul had to come to this understanding. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if ever there was a life verse for the Apostle Paul, that's it. If ever there was a moment in time that he needed to come to, that's the moment, the determination of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the entire message. It is not to be added to or subtracted from, sugar-coated, blended in with other things. It is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to every question. The solution to every problem. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul came to Corinth... In Christ alone. The philosophies were behind him. The learning, the education was a thing of the past. Now it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When he arrived in Corinth, immediately he met Aquila and Priscilla. Fellow Jews, fellow sufferers, having been kicked out of Rome in the Jewish expulsion under Claudius fellow tent makers, and Paul would call them in Romans 16 verse 3, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And it's very likely that Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, knew Jesus before they knew Paul. And that that was another association and affiliation that they shared. Tent makers, Jesus lovers, sufferers, Jews, they had so much in common, no wonder Paul fell in with them and they began to work together. Acts chapter 18 tells us that Paul was reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, Shabbat to Shabbat, and then during the week, reasoning, talking to, preaching to the Gentiles in the marketplace. But, Acts chapter 18 verse 5 tells us, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Why? Because Timothy and Silas brought a gift 
from the churches in Macedonia such that Paul did not have to work to support himself. Now the work was the preaching of the gospel. Now he could be full time where his heart so longed to be. He testified Jesus was the Christ. Acts 18 verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. He said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. A very clean man. (laughs) We think Titius Justus is the same as Gaius or Gaius that we will read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. His full name, probably Gaius Titius Justus, which would be a typical Romanesque name, having three names altogether. So he's at the house of Titius, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. (laughs) I love it. Paul camps out preaching the gospel right next to the very building where he had been rejected. He doesn't go across town. He doesn't hide away. He doesn't sneak up to a mountain chalet to teach. No, he is right there in the face of the synagogue. And as he teaches, we're told, verse 8, Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, in the night, by a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. That is Corinth. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. After that year and a half of Corinth, Paul would then return back to the, to the east. He would head back to Caesarea and then on up to Antioch. From Antioch, he would head north again on his third missionary journey, returning, coming by way of land around the top and then down to Ephesus. He would camp there in Ephesus. It would be his base, the the main base of his third missionary trek. And there in Ephesus for two years, he taught the Word. He did extraordinary miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there he heard unsettling news from Chloe's people, as we shall see, about things going on in the church that he had planted across the sea in Corinth. In addition to the unsettling news, he received a letter, or perhaps letters from Corinth, filled with questions. Questions about marriage and divorce. And and what do you do if you're married but your spouse is now an unbeliever and doesn't want to be with you or wants to be with you? How does this all work, Paul? And so he sets out to write the letter to correct the problems and answer the questions. 1 Corinthians begins his response. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, I think his nickname may have been Worcestershire. (laughs) Worcestershire Sosthenes. Sosthenes is a common Hellenistic Jewish name and it means saved by strength. Or strong savior. Great name. It may be, in fact I believe it probably is because of its mention, the same Sosthenes who replaced Crispus as the synagogue leader of Corinth. Back in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, after Crispus got saved, the Jews got incensed, furious 
Their previous synagogue leader is now following this Paul who's preaching next door. And so they dragged Paul out before the new proconsul who showed up in 51 AD. A man by the name of Galileo. Galileo sat up on the big bema seat, the judgment seat, towering above Paul and, and above the Jews to listen to this unrest, this problem. And he dismissed the case. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is about religion? I have no interest in this. Deal with this yourselves. And he left the judgment seat. And the Jews of Corinth beat up, not Paul, but Sosthenes, the synagogue leader who probably led them to Galileo in the first place. They beat him up out of frustration and being furious that Paul wasn't indicted for something. You let this happen, Sosthenes, and they took him down. And now we see Sosthenes with Paul. And if it in fact is the same man, it makes me think sometimes it takes a beating in life to come to your senses. Sometimes it takes a whooping. Sometimes life has to fall apart. And those you trust have to turn against you before you realize you have nobody but Jesus to turn to. Sosthenes turns to the Lord. Listen, don't despair of past poundings and problems and abuses in your life. Praise God that they were used to get you to Jesus. Thank God that the pain of the past was part of the process that brought you to your knees before the Lord. That lands you in His arms, in His embrace, forever saved. Hey, the past is past. And many here have a painful past. I know I've talked to many of you. A lot of hurts, a lot of wounds back there. Hey, it's alright. It's part of the perfect process of arriving at Jesus. Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice. 1 Peter 1.6 Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here's Sosthenes. A little world weary, worn for the road, a little beaten up. Perhaps, but he's with Paul, alongside Paul, at the head of this letter to the church at Corinth. Authored by the will of God. Note that every book in Scripture is authored by the Holy Spirit. And then spoken through Paul, but as it appears, and the reason we see Sosthenes' name here is like Tertius in the book of Romans, Sosthenes is most likely the scribe. He's the one writing down what Paul is now dictating to him. And in verse 2, Paul says to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace, that is charis, to you, it's the Greek greeting, and peace, shalom, to you, that's the Hebrew greeting, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're going to get into how messy this church was. We talked a bit about that on Sunday. The messed up church at Corinth. But Paul begins with how holy they were. What a marvelous way to start this letter. Saints 
By calling, he says. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Remember on Sunday, sanctified is hagiazo. It's made holy. And then saints is hagias, which just means holy ones. I know we talked about that Sunday, but there's something here more than I think we need to understand. Where perhaps our definition of holiness comes up short. And for years growing up in church, I would read commentaries, I would hear pastors talk about holiness. And how is it defined? Separate. Set apart. And indeed, that's what hagias means. Set apart ones, or, or separate ones, holy ones. But the problem is, that's only half of the equation. It's not just about being set apart. If it was, then my Gilligan's Island DVD collection is holy. <laughs> Set apart for viewing at a certain point in time later this week or perhaps tonight. If, if it just means set apart, then my pants are holy when I set them out the night before to wear the next day. And I'm not just talking about ripped jeans. You know, if I'm setting them apart for a purpose, then they must be holy. No, that's not the case. It's not just that we are set apart. It's for whom we have been set apart. And that's the aspect of holiness that is lacking. If I'm simply set apart, different than the world, well, how am I different? Well, because I try harder. Wrong. Well, because I'm I'm, I'm more good. Wrong. Because I've learned more Bible. Wrong. I am set apart to God. I am distinct because of God. Set apart unto Him. And, And in this word, hagios in the Greek, It has a Hebrew background to it. Paul is thinking with a Hebrew mindset when he talks to the sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all behavior. Because it is written, Leviticus 11.44 and 45, you shall be holy because I am holy. It's not that you're holy just because you... Go to church every week. Set apart Sunday morning as your time of worship. No, your holiness is because God is holy. You have been called to, set apart to, the holy God. And that makes us hagias, holy ones. The the Hebrew word behind the Greek word is kadosh. Listen to the first time it's used in the Bible. Exodus chapter 3 verse 5. At the burning bush, God says, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. My friends, the dirt was not innately divine. It wasn't just one spot on planet earth that God had just somehow made holy. Holy dirt. No. It was holy because God was there. It was holy because of the presence of the Lord. It was set apart to God for His purpose, therefore holy. And the church at Corinth, though highly gifted and obviously graced, misunderstood that they were the church of God, set apart to God, holy ones by calling. And so Paul affirms this before he gets into any of the mess. You're holy. And I could affirm the same thing to you tonight. No matter what you came out of this week... No matter what your day looked like earlier, you come into this place, understand that not because you came, 
But because you have come to Jesus, you are holy, sanctified. I'm a saint. As we talked about Sunday, Saint Rick, I love it. I'll take that title. Made holy by a holy God. You know what's great about it? Holiness is a relational word. Because to be holy, I have to belong to God. And because I'm in a relationship of belonging, I become a holy one of God. That's why we here tonight are the Hagios. Called to belong to a holy God. Now, one other quick thing here. Note that at the end of verse 2, Paul deals with a subtle mentality that can creep into the church, and it does all the time today. And it's the mentality that we are the holy ones. The Bridge Fellowship. This is the holiest church on Whidbey Island. The rest, you know, they'll come along, but, but we, we at the Bridge, oh yeah, we're the holy ones. Know what Paul says at the end of verse 2. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Because the church is at once much bigger than any particular fellowship. Far larger. The reason I've told you before we don't have a church membership is because your membership is determined by God when you come to Him and are declared holy by Him. It's not because you go to the bridge, or Christ the King, or Living Way, or any other church in the area. It's because you've come to God. And once you've come to Jesus... You're in the church. You have membership. We're just fellowshipping here as members of the larger body of Christ. So Paul writes in verse 4, <coughs> excuse me, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. And remember, Paul was there 18 months. He saw this. He's just confirming what he himself witnessed. You're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Which is so good because it has nothing to do with your faithfulness through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, the issue with fellowship with a holy God is that is what makes us holy. I'm holy because I'm in fellowship with Him and His holiness gets all over me. He's holy, therefore we are holy. Now, we went that far Sunday morning. Understand that holiness does not mix well with the flesh. It's like oil and water. It doesn't work. Verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, or literally are the same. That you all are the same, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, 
and I'm Apollo, and I'm a Cephas, and I of Christ. Divisions were taking place at Corinth. That word divisions, back in verse 10, schisma. Where we get our word schism, and, and it literally means to tear, or to split, or to break apart. You guys are breaking up. You're splitting apart. You're dividing into factions. It's remarkable. You're dividing into factions. Would that you be made complete, he says there at the end of verse 10. Made complete is katartizo. And katartizo is a medical word. It's a word that doctors used for the mending of bones. That that which is broken would be set and formed and re-strengthened would be mended back together. Bones fractured or, or joints dislocated, they would call katartizo. And Paul says, I, that's what I wish for you. You're divided right now. You're breaking up. Pull it together. Be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. He uses that word three times. Same, same, same. I want you to be the same in your thinking. Now, Paul's addressing what he considers to be broken bones in the body at Corinth. Four fractures that he lists out here. The Pauline break, the Apollos splinter, the Cephas crack, and finally the Christian fragment. You might say, wait, wait, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. I read these four things and I would think the fourth is the right one. Right? Not I of Paul, or I of Apollos, or I of Cephas, but I'm of Christ. And that's, that's the group I want to be a part of, and that's the problem. They were still broken off from the others. I love some of the church names we have out there. Perhaps you once attended one of these. The Church of God. Oh, they're the Church of God. The Church of Christ. They're of Christ. The bridge? <laughs> what are you guys? We... We are the first reformed, once removed Christian fellowship of the last century continued on. All of these names that we have, all of these, well, fractures, divisions, it's one body. It's just one body. And we may meet in different buildings, and we may gather and have, you know, different styles, I guess, different flavors, whatever. But don't forget, it's one body. We are not in competition with other Christ-following people. Even those who say, I'm of Christ. Hey, listen, I'm of the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. And in verse 13, Paul says, has Christ been divided? Is that even possible? Listen, his body was pierced. His blood flowed. But like the Passover lamb, Exodus 12.46, not a bone of his was broken. His bones, his frame, if you will, remained intact. John 19.36, these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And the body of Christ is not to be broken bones. It is not to be fragmented and fractured and, and broken but to be mended as one. Broken people in the body? Absolutely. No question about that. Wounded people? 
Sinful people, struggling people, yes, but not a broken body. Not where Christ is the head. And in fact, Paul will write to the church of Colossae, Christ is the head, Colossians 2.19, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Broken bones don't grow well. They need mending. And then once mended can be strong. Paul says, Corinth, I want you together, not divided. And of all the issues that Paul deals with in this letter, and there are many, division is the first. And it is the primary concern of the Apostle. We see it throughout his letters, Romans 14, 19. We pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Ephesians 4.3 Preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians 2.2 Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. United in spirit intent on one purpose. That's the body of Christ. And Colossians 3.13 Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And Paul says... Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. From time to time, it's probably wise for us to ask ourselves, am I dividing or am I mending? Do my words break bones or heal fractures? Now you might wonder how this sameness, he says, be the same, be the same, be the same, be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. How is that possible when you have a group of diverse people? Of uniquely different people. And every fellowship does. So how in diversity are we supposed to maintain this sameness? It's very simple. It would be impossible if we gathered around a political ideology. Because pretty soon we would start to see that our ideology was slightly different depending on the issue. If we gathered around a philosophy, we would soon start to realize that there are different ideas and views of life in this world if we surrounded around a concept. But we don't. We gather, we meet in Jesus Christ. We gather around a person who is absolutely solid, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. We come to Him, and in all of our diversity, we become the same in Christ. We gather to Him. We're unified by His Holy Spirit. And we stay clarified by His Word. That's how in diversity we become the same. The reason for all the divisions and fractures and splits in Christianity today... I would start with the Word and then make our way backward from there. Where the Word is not taught, people divide. Where the Spirit is not acknowledged, people are not unified. And where Jesus is not the focus of all that's going on, people divide. Jesus, His Spirit, His Word. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, you might add, come to think of it, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Crispus 
again, the synagogue leader before Sosthenes in Corinth, Gaius was probably Titius Justus, as we mentioned in Acts chapter 18. But it's interesting to me, he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, as if an afterthought. I see, did I baptize anybody else? Trying to count off, and, and perhaps Stephanus was there while Paul is writing, and, and Stephanus goes, Paul, you got me too. Oh yeah, that's right, Stephanus and his people. Baptized them, but I don't, I don't think I baptized anyone else. If baptism is so important, why doesn't Paul keep a ledger? Why don't we have a sign on the wall that shows the number of baptisms for this year? Why don't we follow that through? Well, wait, Rick, so you're saying baptism is not important? No. I'm just saying it's not the main thing. We don't want to become ritualistic or ritual-focused in our faith walk with Jesus. Yes, you're baptized. But you're baptized after having made a confession of faith. You have faith in Jesus. You come into relationship with Jesus. That's the big picture. Baptism just symbolizes that on the outside. Now, it's a beautiful and a profound symbol, but it's obviously not important enough for Paul to keep a running track of everyone he baptized so he can present the list to the Lord in the day of his salvation. See, I I, I got uh, Crispus and Gaius, who was even more tidious after I baptized him, and I got Stephanus and, uh, and his entire household. Let's see, who else did I... No! For Paul, it doesn't matter who he baptized because it's not about Paul. And no baptism is about the baptizer. Some people want to be baptized by the pastor. Okay, I don't care as long as they get baptized. But it doesn't have to be that way. And Paul recognizes this. Gordon Fee, in probably the, the most premier commentary on the book of First and Second Corinthians, Gordon Fee wrote, Paul is not trying to work out a theology of baptism, nor is he in effect negating baptism. He's just putting it in proper perspective. What Paul's doing here is focusing, and here is his focus, on the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Preaching the gospel, not keeping records. And in verse 17 he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What you could add to that, and what's implied by that, is others can do the baptizing. And we want the baptizing going on. Trust me. But it doesn't have to be Paul. And Paul knows because of his stature already in the church, because of the notoriety of this Jew become Christian, that it's best if he doesn't attach his name to anything. That's why you don't see a single church of Paul in the New Testament. St. Paul's Cathedral came up long after he died. And I don't think he would have approved No, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He says, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And now we come literally to the crux of the message. And I use that word intentionally. The crux. You know the Latin word crux. Literally it means a cross, a hanging tree, an impaling stake, or torture. That's what the word crux means. Isn't it interesting that in English it has come to mean the heart of the matter? The main thing? That which is most important. The crux of our message is the cross. 
It is our message. The cross of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, that's the deal. That's what I was called to do. Not to baptize, but to preach the cross. And he says, not in cleverness of speech. No, he tried that in Athens. And it didn't work out so well. What's wrong with clever speech? What's wrong with the occasional pun? What's wrong with coming up with a list of five points that all start with the same letter? Can we do that, Paul? Yeah, you can do that. But that's not the point. And Paul says you've got to be careful. And I tell you guys, this verse, it unnerves me. Because what he's saying here, he says it's cleverness of speech that can make the cross void. Huh? Yeah. One of the greatest causes of schisms and fractures in the church today is the cult of personality. It's, I want to go hear this guy. I want to go listen to that guy. Oh, she's the latest thing. Paul says, has nothing to do with the messenger. It's all about the message. And if the messenger gets in the way, and if the words are too crafty, People will align around a leader. They'll align around a teacher or a discipler. Jesus is the one we are called to gather to. Not a pastor. Not a preacher. And not someone who's clever with words. I think some of the best things I have ever taught are when I stumble through an hour of teaching. Struggle to hang on. Tired. Frustrated. Long day. Confused in myself. By teaching the Word. And that's... That's where I've seen over and over the power of God. Because that's when people are most impressed. I go home and I go, yeah, nailed that. And I don't get one sound from anyone. Not even my wife. How is the teacher, dear? How how is the teaching, dear? Good. Not life-changing. Not invigorating. That was good. Great. Pass the Oreos. It is no pastor's job to attract followers to himself. It is only the pastor's job to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. To come back to the cross again and again. As I said, Paul tried the clever speech in Athens and it is a brilliant sermon without Jesus. It's a moving, eloquent speech. But now, Paul, out of his own experience, says clever speech hollows out the message of the cross. Makes it void. And the King James, I like that translation, he says that it makes the cross of none effect. Because people hear the words and are impressed by the words and and they miss the power of the cross. Eloquence and personality get in the way. And so... People-pleasing is messy business. Paul says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's why some pastors don't like to preach the cross. Because it's foolish. Because people think it's dumb. They don't see the... Need. Man, that was 2,000 years ago. It's too bad what happened to your rabbi, but come on. And yet he says, 
To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there's your division, by the way. It's the only division that is a good division. The cross divides. The cross divides. Lost from saved. Dying from living. Blind from seeing. What I was to who I now am. The cross divides. And yet once we cross that division, what's remarkable is that in the cross, there is no division. In the cross of Christ, there is no division. All are made one. All are equal. Male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. All are one in Christ Jesus. The cross does that. It divides me out from my lost history. And brings brings me into that sameness of the saved. And notice what he says here. Verse 18. These two words you might want to circle in your Bibles. To us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Being saved? The word in the Greek is sozo. Get used to it. You'll hear it a lot. Every time you see the word salvation or saved, it's sozo. And it's a word that that is rich and deep in its meaning. But right here, sozo is in the present passive participle. Present meaning it's continuous action. Passive because it's happening to the subject. So the present participle means that I am in process of salvation. I am being saved. And passive because it's happening to me and I have nothing to do with it. Except that I receive it and accept it. Now this is interesting to me. Because in Christ Jesus, we are in the saving process. Is that unsettling to anyone? I thought I was saved. I thought it was a done deal. Rick, you told me that before. At the cross, 2,000 years ago, my judgment happened and I was declared righteous and I'm saved. You are. Well then how can I be in process? Listen. Salvation is process in progress. And I love how this works. Let me clarify this real quickly. It is true that the person who gets saved tonight is as saved as I am having first come to Jesus 41 years ago. Okay, no difference. Both are saved. And both are in the process of salvation. And here it is. Number one, I was saved from the price of sin. Past tense. That happened when I came to Jesus. The price of sin paid in full. The payment made. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Romans 6.23 Taken care of by the cross. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Take a moment tonight and thank God that what you were, you no longer are. You were lost. You no longer are. You are now saved. All the payment made, the price of sin met. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. That's the price of sin. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the process began at the cross. You realize my salvation process began before I was born? At the cross, where the price was paid, past tense, 
But it continues. I am currently being saved from the power of sin. That's in the present. That's right now. The price of sin paid. The power of sin is currently disabled. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 6, Our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And you are not. And I am not. Why do I sin? Because I choose to. But I don't have to anymore. I'm in a new place. I'm in the process where all of the power of sin has been completely disarmed, disabled. Sin has no mastery over you, over me. That's done. So in the process of salvation, the price of sin was paid. The power of sin denied. Romans 6-7 says, For he who has died is free from sin. And I encourage you to live that way. Don't keep giving in to sin. Realize you have been freed from it. You don't have to do it. You did before. You don't really have any choice before. You didn't know any better. Now you do. Now you have been freed from the power of sin, the price of sin in the past, the power of sin in the present. And finally, I will be saved from the punishment of sin in the future. My salvation is in process, gang. 1 John 4.18 talked about this at Connect on Friday night. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And the point that we saw Friday night is that the love being talked about by John there is God's love. It's not my love. It's not that the more I perfect my love, the less fearful I am, the more loving a guy I am, the less worried I am. No. It's the love of God that takes away all fear of condemnation. That is the future punishment of sin. The price has been paid. The power is denied. And the punishment gone. And that's the process that we are all in. God's love is proven in the power of the cross. The cross. We could spend weeks just talking about this issue, the power of the cross. For not only does it have me in the process of salvation, past, present, and future, but the cross itself is powerful to the past, to the present, and to the future. What do you mean? I mean that everyone who died in faith before Jesus was crucified, saved by the power of the cross. Everyone alive at the time of the crucifixion who saw it happen, who came to faith in Jesus in that generation, saved by the power of the cross and everyone since. It's as if the the cross beams out this vast umbrella that covers all of history, past, present, and future. The power of the cross. That's how awesome it is. You see, when you hang God on a cross, you have no less power than complete power. And it covers the entire history of the world. But to perishing humanity, the cross, it's just foolish. It's just dumb. It's ludicrous. God on a cross. Ridiculous. An ancient cartoon was discovered etched in plaster on the Palatine Hill, which is the center of the seven hills in Rome. And there in that plaster, discovered in 
dating back to 225 A.D., is a cartoon drawing. The figure of a man. And he's bowing down with his hands lifted up before another man hanging on a cross. And the caption beneath it reads, Alexa Minos worships his God. And the man on the cross has a head of a donkey. You see, even back then, well, especially back then when Christianity was so maligned, it was stupid to talk about God on a cross. And so he was represented by this cartoonist anyway, Jesus with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross. God on a cross? Come on! Listen, the cross not only shows us the power of God, Paul tells us it shows the wisdom of God as well. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Paul quotes Isaiah 29 verse 14. He says in verse 20, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And I would say amen and amen. But the world today would say we've got Google. We've got Wikipedia. Hallelujah, the world is saved. We've got Facebook and Instagram. And I with Paul say, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Well, didn't you see when I posted on Facebook, it had little flowers around it and everything. Where is the debater of the age? Where are the great minds? And the great philosophers? I saw this article, perhaps you saw it today too. It actually was posted in Quartz.com. I know many of you go there often. It's called The End of the Written Word. Caught my eye. Listen to the article. Facebook is predicting the end of the written word, at least on its platform. In five years' time, Facebook, quote, will be definitely mobile and it will be probably all video, said Nicola Mendelssohn, who heads up Facebook's operations in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. At a conference in London this morning, she made this claim. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, and resident hoodie-wearing guy, has already noted that video will be more and more important for the platform. By the way, have you all seen the woman who bought the Chewbacca mask? If you haven't seen this lady, she's cool. She's a worship leader for her church. She went to... Where was it she went? Anybody know the store? Kohl's. Was it Kohl's? Went to Kohl's and bought a Chewbacca mask. For herself. And posted, opening it up in her car, on Facebook, posted her putting the Chewbacca mask on, and she laughs hysterically. It's the funniest thing I've seen in about ten years. If you need a good laugh, just look up Lady with Chewbacca Mask on YouTube. It will crack you up. It's one of the funniest videos out there. Anyway, I digress. This Mendelssohn, this lady, went further. She said that stats showed that the written word is becoming all but obsolete. Replaced by moving images and speech. 
Now, at the conference in London, in the room there was a perceptible shifting. Perhaps because the written word seems a rather major aspect of civilization to dispatch with so quickly. But it won't disappear entirely, Mendelssohn assured the crowd. You'll have to write script for the videos. And so here we are today, 2016, and in all the noise, and in all the flashes, and all the images, and all the technology, Paul's question rings more true now than it did when he first spoke it. Where are the sophos, the wise men? Where are they? Who's bringing wisdom to the world? Where are we hearing it? Where are the grammateus, the scholars? Not those who quickly gather information on Wikipedia, but those who actually study to show themselves approved. Where are the Susitatus, that is, the great philosophers? I've mentioned to you before, growing up, we had a, a series of books. We had the Encyclopedia Britannica, and we had great minds of the Western world. Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. All of these great writers and thinkers. Where are they? J. Vernon McGee says, about 400 years before Christ, they showed up in mass there in the Greek culture. They were pronouncing all kinds of great thoughts, things that we are still thinking about today. And then he said there was a dearth of knowledge for a long time, except in the Word, except as the Bible was coming together. And then about 400 years ago, all of a sudden, men like Bacon and others, great philosophers, began to emerge again and speak great truths. But there's been a dearth of wisdom ever since, save those who are simply reading and teaching the Word of God. Where are the wise men? Verse 21, For since the wisdom of, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You need to understand here, God has a program at work. We ask questions like, Wait a minute, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God? Why didn't God just say, I am here! Done! Finished! Well, He did with Adam and Eve, and it didn't work, did it? Because they were a little too smart for their own britches, even though they didn't have any. God did this. And God set forth His plan in such a way that faith would be required. That's the wisdom of God showing the absolute foolishness of men. But the plan is bigger than simply that we are aware of God. The plan is bigger than that we come to know God. What is the plan? Anybody know? It is the glory of God. That is the purpose of everything God did. That is the purpose of the cross. It's the purpose of the message of the cross. It's the purpose of what we would think of, or at least the non-believer would call the foolishness of the message, because ultimately when the message is finally received, God is glorified. That is always God's purpose. To glorify Himself. And for those who would say, well, that's kind of an ego trip. No, it's not. Because God, in glorifying Himself gives meaning to us. Life and understanding. 
It all comes together as we see Him glorified. We say, oh, that's the purpose of everything. Everything comes into focus where God is glorified. Now Paul says, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The message preached. Different translations say different things, but the message preached is probably the best. The word here is its a surprisingly rare word in the New Testament. I would have thought it would be used all over the place. The word for preached or preaching. It's kerugma. And kerugma in the Greek is, is proclamation. It's a herald's cry. But it's different than euangelion, evangelism. It's different in that it not only has to do with the act of preaching, but it's the content of the message. So the kerugma Paul refers to, and it's used eight times in the New Testament, and that's all. Twice used by Jesus in parallel passages, Matthew 12.41 and Luke 11.29. Listen to how Jesus uses the word. He says, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something is greater than... Something greater than Jonah is here. The preaching, the kerugma of Jonah. That's the first use of the word in the New Testament. And the first use talks about foolish preaching. Because to Jonah, the message was foolish, right? God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. You've got to be kidding me, God. Go to that heathen bastion of pagan stupidity. I'm not going there. And so he goes in the opposite direction and books passage on a ship out of Joppa and heads out to sea. And you know the story. And it's a foolish story. And it is absolutely true. What, that a a whale swallowed a man and belched him up on the shore? That's foolish, that's stupid, it's true. How do you know? Jesus taught it. And so this strange, seemingly foolish story about this strange, seemingly foolish prophet who gets erped up on the shore, makes his way finally to Nineveh, preaches the message that he himself counts foolish. And what happened? All Nineveh saved. The foolishness of the message preached brought salvation. You think maybe Jesus had that in mind when he used the word kerugma? The preaching of Jonah? And by the way, what else did Jesus use the story of Jonah to proclaim, to represent? His death, burial, and resurrection. He said in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so also will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, crucified, buried, resurrected. The story of Jesus, the Gospel, is foolishness to those who don't believe. But to those who do... It is power and it is the wisdom of God. Jonah. What a fish story. (laughs) But you know what? The people of Nineveh didn't think so. Now understand when he says because of the foolishness of the message preached. The foolishness of preaching is not the preaching of foolishness. Don't confuse the two. There's plenty of that to go around in the world today, and I'm not talking about my puns. There is plenty of foolish teaching 
going on. And there's a lot of false teaching as well. And the two are very closely aligned. The only difference, in my opinion, is the heart of the preacher. The foolish preacher is the one who's really not preaching God's Word. He's just doing what he thinks he's supposed to do. But at least he's doing it with the right heart. The false preacher, the false prophet, knows exactly what he's doing. And uses the Word to his advantage to garner his following the cult of personality that we talked about. How do we know the difference between the foolishness of preaching, which is what I'm doing right now, and the preaching of foolishness? How do we know the difference? God says, Isaiah 55, 11, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. If the preaching is of the Word of God, it is not a foolish preaching. It may be heard as the foolishness of preaching. And truly, there are people right in our area who would think you foolish for spending your entire Wednesday night listening to this guy Babylon in 1 Corinthians. Are you kidding me? When you could be watching, binge-watching Arrow on Netflix... Which is kind of a cool show, by the way. But anyway. It's foolish. No, it's not. It's the Word. And I would encourage you, as long as we're going through the Word of God and sticking to the Word of God, we're in good shape. But if I start going off, beginning next week, we're going to be talking about five ways to mend a raft. I think it's important here on Whidbey Island. And then after that, we're going to look at five clues to living successfully. You start hearing me talk like that, please go somewhere else. Because that is just the preaching of foolishness. People decry the Bible today. They say, how can it be relevant? How can the Bible be relevant when a terrorist goes into a gay nightclub and murders 50 people? How does the Bible apply there, Pastor? How does it apply when a young child gets grabbed by an alligator and torn away from his parents into the water at Disney World? Where's your Bible then? And in the politics of of terror and, and addictions, look at this world, global upheaval. Can your Bible give wisdom to sitting presidents? Well, if he'd read it. Can it enlighten the United Nations if they'd open it? The Word of God. Gang, the Word of God is the litmus test of truth in all preaching and all teaching. And if the Word of God is absent, so is the wisdom. Don't go listen to a man. You go listen to the Word itself. For the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. The Word is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, which is why when we're in the Word together, we can walk out of here. Wow, that hit me between the eyes. How did Rick know? 
I've told you so many times, I didn't and I don't. I have no idea. But the Word is effective and powerful because it is the wisdom of God. Verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. That is a scandal on And to the Gentiles, it's it's foolishness. See, the Jews wanted a Messiah with signs of power. That's what they expected. That's what they looked forward to. Jesus in His second coming. And so in His first coming, they didn't recognize Him. Signs of power. Ironically, was not Jesus powerful? Healing the blind and the sick and the lame and the deaf... Raising the dead back to life? I mean, how much power? Walking on water? Calming the storms? Casting out demons? How much power do you need? But it was power under control. Jesus was never a show-off. In fact, interestingly, though He could have, Jesus even denied Himself for much of His ministry. Jesus quieted the talk. And when the buzz got loud, he left. But he was powerful, and yet the Jews, that's what they wanted. We want power. We don't want the embarrassing scandal on of a Jew on a cross. So they missed him. Greeks, (laughs) the Greeks wanted to be wowed with wisdom. Was Jesus not wise? Did anybody teach like him? And yet he stayed in Judea. And much of the Greek world, the greater Greek and Roman world outside, only got occasional messages or heard that there's this rabbi stirring things up in Judea, maybe, but even that, Jesus kept it all localized, going first to the Jew, knowing ultimately that the Gospel would go to the Greek. So the Greeks wanted wisdom, not the foolishness of a God on a cross. But you know and I know the power and the wisdom, they both belong to God. Verse 24, But to those who are, note this, the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Beyond the written word, the power and the wisdom is Jesus. It is in Jesus. We see it acted out by Jesus in the Gospels as He walked on this earth. Power and wisdom unlike anybody else. The power and wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, the most brilliant man alive when compared to God Man, those are God's afterthoughts. The wisdom of God is mind-blowing. The weakness of God, the strong man, the most powerful man, is a 98-pound weakling compared to the Lord. Now what's interesting here is what matters, Paul says, is neither Jew nor Greek. He himself, the one-time Pharisee, this is, this is big news coming from Paul. It's not who you are. Remember where we started. It's whose you are. 
Your holiness is not something you generate. It is that Jesus died on the cross who made us holy, set apart to God. And note this, Paul calls us in verse 24, underline it, circle it, memorize it, the called. The called. In the Greek it's hokletos. And hokletos, the ho is important because the ho at the beginning of it is the definite article. It's not just kletos. Paul doesn't say, but those who are called both Jews and Greeks. No, it's the called. Those who are the called. What does that mean? Don't miss this. It's certainty. If you are the called, you are certain of your salvation. If you be- Listen, if you believe, get this, if you believe in Jesus, you can be absolutely sure that God called you, God invited you, and God welcomed you to the faith. To be called the called is the stuff of greatest confidence. I am the called of God. Called to Him, called by Him, drawn to Him. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me and I will raise him up in the last day. God had a hand in your calling. Now, don't misunderstand. That's not an exclusive message. It's actually very inclusive. But Paul is talking to the called and he reminds them, you are the called, even as I am tonight. I'm talking to the called. Sarah, you are called by God, which means any question... In Sarah's mind as to whether or not her salvation is secure is gone because God called her. She just said yes. And so it's confidence for the called. What about for the lost? What about for the person on the outside, Rick? Listen, call on his name and you'll become the called. And that's how it works. The only reason why we're called the called and why we're called by God is that God knew that we would call on His name by His foreknowledge. We talked about in Romans chapter 8. Go study that out again if you forgot it. He foreknew that you were going to call on Him, so He called you to call on Him. And in that calling, you have become the called. And that's confidence, man. Well, verse 26. He says, consider your calling. That is the moment that you were called. Think about it. Go ahead, think about it. Go back. Remember when you first said, I think I might believe this. This has been something I've rejected for years, but yeah, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Jesus. Do you remember the moment? Think about that. Paul says, consider it, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. How much did you know when you were first called? I was 10 years old. I knew there was a Jesus. I didn't know a whole lot else. I knew I loved Him. I knew there was something about Him that excited me. I knew there was something eternal such as that my puny little 10-year-old mind could understand. But I was not much when I was called. None of us were. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And that is so comforting to this foolish man. So comforting that he has chosen the weak things of the world 
to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Listen, the next time someone tells you that Christianity is hypocritical and judgmental and exclusive, you hand them this verse. You want to know who we are? You want to know who we were when we first were called by God? Foolish, weak, many of us shameful, base, despised. We were nothing. We were not in the who's who of America. The things that are not, verse 28 continues, He has called so that He may nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Note this, it's not that no man may boast, it's literally that no flesh may boast. Flesh, sarks in the Greek. It is that that guttural word for flesh. It is the most base and carnal word for flesh in the Greek language. The fleshy mess of of skin and muscle and blood. That stuff that, that is basically between the outside air and our bone structure is the sarks. And the Greeks saw it as that, kind of a base, despised thing. Just kind of holds the frame together, you know? And what's marvelous to me is that John 1.14 tells us the Word became sarks. Jesus put on flesh. And Paul here says, no flesh may boast before God. And even Jesus, when He became flesh, He refused to boast in His flesh. In fact, He let go His glory. He emptied Himself of it. Of that divine nature that was His for all eternity past with God. Philippians 2.7, Paul says, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. That is flesh. And even Jesus chose not to glory or boast in the flesh before God. Now people may read that and say, okay, back to the ego trip. Why doesn't God want flesh to boast? Is it just because, you know, he, He's jealous? Or is it because of an insecurity issue? You know, or, or perhaps that God's ego is so big that He just can't abide anyone else with an ego like His? No. Here's the thing. That no flesh boasts before God, it's because God knows me. And God knows you. And God knows that if we rely on the flesh, we're dead. If we boast in the flesh, we're history. If we are about the flesh, eternity is lost. And He would that no flesh boast before Him. So that our entire trust, our entire boasting, if we are going to boast, is in the Lord. Flesh always fails, doesn't it? My flesh continues to fail me. Just got better from diverticulitis, which is funny to me that I have that thing, because that used to be an old Saturday Night Live skit. Remember that? I've got diverticulitis. I used to laugh at that when I was a kid. Now I got it. And I just get better from the double round of antibiotics taken to knock this thing out. 
And for a couple of days, I feel good. And then David starts coughing. And then Naomi starts coughing. And then Anna Marie starts coughing. And the only reason I'm not coughing right now is Delsum. <laughs> the flesh. It always fails us. It always disappoints. Skin and bone will let you down every single time. Haven't you experienced that in relationships? The flesh is imperfect and sinful. It's that fractured faction in a church, that cracked clique. It's that splinter group. And listen, even in this fellowship, if you put your faith in flesh, it will let you down. I will let you down. Do not put your faith in the flesh. Now, now don't give up on the body of Christ. Don't give up on the church. Love each other. As Christ first loved us, and keep our eyes on the head of the body of Christ, which is Christ Himself. And verse 30 says, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Note that if you're wise, it's because of Christ. If you are righteous, it is His righteousness. If you are being sanctified, being saved, as we saw before, it's because of Jesus. And if you are redeemed, it is Jesus who did it. So that, just as it is written, Jeremiah 9.23, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Oh, the wonderful cross. Father, we see in the cross the power of God and the wisdom of God. A power that surpasses any power we could possibly comprehend in the cross. And there in the death of Jesus we see played out Your wisdom, Lord. And we here tonight, we glorify Your name, Jesus. We lift You up, Jesus. We praise You, Jesus, the power and the wisdom of God for going to the cross and proving the love of God once and for all. Lord, may we by the cross be mended and never divided. May we as a fellowship remain unified and never fractured because of the power and the wisdom, Lord, of the cross. Thank You, Jesus, for gathering us to it and to Yourself tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.